Uh, well, let me add my own welcome to that of uh, Kate's uh, earlier in the service. Um, uh, and uh, I do see a lot of visitors here this evening. You're very welcome. It's wonderful to have you here for whatever reason you've come. Uh, you've joined us in the middle of a, a series looking at the book of Philippians. So let me encourage you uh, all to turn um, in your Bibles to page 1179, 1179, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, uh, the passage that Phil read for us just a little bit earlier. Philippians chapter 2. 12 to 18. Uh, There are several hundred of us here and uh, several hundred of us could say what I'm about to say. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That's an encouragement, isn't it, as I'm the vicar here. Uh, It is very easy to say that. Uh, Not least of all because I've been saying it for 27 years now. I don't know how long you've been a Christian, if you are, how long you've been saying it. I've been saying it for 27 years now. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But on Friday this week, as I was preparing this, it grabbed me with new bites. As a follower of Jesus Christ, if you were here last week, you'll have heard this. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says, My attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So as we saw last week, I am to lay down my life in self-sacrificial service for the salvation of others. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That is how I am to live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We are to be just as evangelistic as Jesus was. And Jesus was obedient to the gospel mission, even though it meant the terror and the horror of the cross for him. And so the Philippians and we must follow him. We saw it last week. It is a tough challenge. And anyone who is not intimidated by this challenge simply hasn't understood it. But Paul has already given us one huge motivation to face this challenge. He reminded us that although Jesus faced such a life of sacrifice, yet now he has been vindicated, exalted to the very highest place in the universe. And we see that in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 2. God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. And so do you see the pattern? Yes, we are to lay down our lives for for others as Christ did, but he was vindicated and raised up. So we know that all the loss and all the suffering we face now will be more than paid back in the life to come. Jesus has shown us that. He is the guarantee of that. And so with that wonderful thought before us, now Paul is going to lay out how we are to follow the evangelistic model of Jesus Christ. How we are to be other person centred. How we are to live a life that is more concerned for the salvation of others than for our own comfort. Exactly what we saw last week. And so Paul writes in chapter 2 verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, the Philippians were a brilliant church family. They were living out the Christian life. Do you see that at the beginning of verse 12? You're already doing it. You've always obeyed me, says Paul, whether I'm there just to keep an eye on you or not. You're an obedient bunch. They were living out the Christian life. Now Paul says, continue to work out your salvation. Now please don't misread the end of verse 12. Verse 12 says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Uh, What he's going to say is not how we need to do things in order to get right with God. The Philippians were already right with God. Jesus died for them, verse 8. 
He made the sacrifice that puts them right with God. There's nothing they or we need to do. There's nothing we can do to try and secure our salvation. That's already been won for us by Jesus on the cross. But what this is saying, as people who are saved, we are to work out our salvation. And especially when it comes to living a life of self-sacrificial service towards others. It's a great thing to do, you know, to, to work out your salvation, to sit down and think to yourself, what will this look like in my life? Work it out. How am I to follow Christ's example in my family, at work, with my friends, uh, with my neighbours, in every situation I find myself, with whoever I find myself? How am I to be, how am I to be a giving person rather than a taker? How can I put others first for their sake, for their good, for their salvation? Sit down and work out what being other person-centred means when it comes to the way I spend my money and my time. It's a great thing to do, to sit down and work this out. So at work, those of you who are in full-time employment or any kind of employment, what does this mean? It means I will not walk over others to get promotion the promotion that I think I deserve. I will take others into account. Verse 3, I won't act out of selfish ambition. I'll consider others more important than myself. Which isn't to say that I can't go for promotion, but it means I'll live a life at work that demonstrates to others that I'm not driven by promotion and self-advancement and all the material trappings that come with a larger salary. I'll work in a way that demonstrates to my colleagues that the gospel is the most important thing in the world to me. And I'll do that for them. For their sake, for their good, for their salvation, praying that they'll be attracted by the way that I live. I think of the Christian who worked in an office where the culture was, uh, which is pretty similar in a lot of offices, to put in long hours to impress the boss. Even if you'd finished your work, you kind of stayed on just to make sure the boss saw that you were committed to the task. But this Christian man refused to bow to that, not least of all because he wanted to be at home with his family, because he knew that that was important as well. He worked hard when he was at work, he was respected for the job he did. And of course he would put extra hours in when the work demanded it, but he wouldn't just stay to impress the boss. And his colleague noticed that. A number of them asked him about his priorities. He had great conversations about the gospel. He had different priorities to them. That's working out your salvation and putting others first. As students, those of you at school and university, work out your salvation in exam time. What does that mean? I'll work hard in revision, I'll prepare well for my exams, but... In my attitude towards my exams, I'm going to demonstrate that I don't believe that everything depends on them. I'm going to show people that my identity is not tied up with my exam results. That my future happiness is not dependent upon my results. My future happiness is in God's hands, my Heavenly Father who loves me. And I'll show that when I get my results. If I do well, I'm going to fight against vain conceit, verse 3. If I'm disappointed with my results, I'm going to demonstrate that I believe in God's sovereignty. He will use this for my good. And I will live this way for the good of others so that others who are stressed up to their eyeballs with the pressures of exams will look at me and find my approach to exams very different, very attractive. And I'll pray that they would then 
want to know more about Jesus. You see, that's how you work out your salvation. Work out your salvation in your relationships, in the way you relate to your boyfriend or girlfriend. Are you acting in ways that are for their good, for their salvation and for their holiness? I do feel sad when it comes to sexual purity that so many of the Christian students I talk to are not living so very differently from students who are not Christians. But work out what it means to live as a Christian in your relationship. Think to yourself, I'm going to put this person first. I'm going to put their holiness above my desires. Work out your salvation when it comes to your money. How can I spend my money for the salvation of others? Yes, I'll give money. But I'll also spend money in a way that speaks to having different priorities. I'll not chase after all the latest gadgets and fashions. I'll use my money in a way that demonstrates to others that I have an inheritance waiting for me. Showing others that there's more to my life than the things of this world. I'll do that for the good of others so that unbelievers want to know, why do you spend your money that way? Sit down and work out your salvation in your use of time. I'll use my time to help others to help unbelieving people become Christians, to help Christians grow in their faith, to help out in the Sunday school and the youth work. As a retired person, I will use my time to pray and to encourage others. I'll refuse in my retirement just to use it as a chance for endless personal leisure and pleasure. I'm going to use my time for others, for their salvation. Do you see this? Do you see how we can sit down and work out our salvation? And once we've sat down and worked it out, then work it out, which is really what this is saying. This is to live it out. Work it out, put it into practice. And we're to do all of this, you see, end of verse 12, with fear and trembling. Now, please don't misunderstand this again. This is not saying that we should work out our salvation fearful for our salvation. That's not it at all. Paul has already written back in chapter 1, verse 6, that God who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. No, there's no fear. Not in that sense. Real Christians need not be fearful for their salvation. No, fear and trembling is Bible language for being in the presence of God. See, in the Bible, whenever people are in God's presence, they tremble with fear. Of course they do. They're before the Lord Almighty. And so Paul is saying, as you work out your salvation, as you think about what it means to be other person focused, and then as you live it out, be mindful of the presence of God in your life, with you, all the time. See, if only I could keep the very real presence of God in my mind all the time, it would help me enormously to live as I should. There have been a number of sensational news stories that have hit the headlines in the last couple of weeks as a result of cameras and microphones being trained on people when they didn't know it. You've heard all the stories. Just before the general election, there was that unfortunate moment in in Rochdale, of all places, when when Gordon Brown got into his car after speaking to a lifelong Labour supporter, Gillian Duffy, about immigration and crime, and getting into his car, forgetting he had a microphone attached, He proceeded to call Gillian Duffy that bigoted woman. You've heard it. And then just a couple of weeks ago, there was the Lord Triesman incident, the chairman of the FA, as he was then, having a private conversation with a former aide and apparently a friend of his, who needs friends like this, Melissa Jacobs. She recorded him making comments about the Russian and Spanish FA bribing referees at this year's World Cup. Remember? And then, of course, there was Sarah Ferguson, 
caught on camera allegedly trying to sell access to her ex-husband, Prince Andrew, in order to secure business deals. Now, it's all very well tutting when we read about these incidents, but I found myself thinking, I've done that. I've done that. I've said things in private that would embarrass me. It would embarrass me so much if they were in the public domain. Paul says, never mind about the public domain, consider the spiritual domain. Whether or not people can see and hear you, God can. So work out your salvation in fear and trembling, being conscious of the presence of God. That's the point, as you work these things out. It would change the way I live if I constantly thought to myself, God is here, God is present. He knows how I'm living. He knows my motives. He knows why I'm doing what I'm doing. See, God knows whether I'm living verses 3 and 4 or not, whether I'm looking out for my own interests or for the interests of others. I might be able to pull the wool over your eyes. I can't pull the wool over his. And his presence is not only an incentive to live this out, it is the means by which I can live this out. Verse 13. See, continue to, end of verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for... It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is working in you. He is present, working in you and me. It's wonderful. This is not all about trying harder. That is not the gospel at all. God works in real Christian people to to will and to act according to his good purposes. His good purpose in this context is for us to be Christ-like, to have the salvation of others always on our mind, to be other person focused. That's what his good purpose is in the context of this section. So the great thing here is that God gives us that desire. He is the one who gives you the desire to be other person focused, to be laying down your life for others. He works in our will. Do you see it there in verse 13? For it is God who works in you to will. I have been so encouraged in these uh, last weeks to meet with different members of of this congregation as a follow-up to the responses from Service Sunday that we had back in January. It has been brilliant to meet with people who are longing that at work they would be a good witness and would be able to share Christ with their colleagues. I've met with a couple of people this week who've thought exactly along those lines. It's been humbling to meet with people going through tough times and hearing them speak of how the Lord has used those times to make them more Christ-like. It has been challenging to hear people speak of how they're trying to use their money for Christ, how they don't just want to spend their money on themselves, how they want to invest in others. It's been such a privilege for me to meet with different members of the congregation and to speak at at that kind of level, a bit deeper than, than I usually do as I stand on the door and shake people by the hand. Because as people have been honest with me, as they've opened up to me, they've given me a little window into their hearts. And I've seen that their desires are godly desires. And as I've read verse 13, I've seen where it's come from, you see. Verse 13 tells me those desires have come from God. For verse 13, it is God who works in you to will to do his purposes, to want the right things. Isn't that brilliant? He changes our desires. And then with our desires changed, verse 13, he works in us to act according to his 
good purposes. He actually gives us the ability to live it, not only to want to live it. Often when uh, speaking to people about becoming Christians, they say to me, I can never become a Christian because I could never keep it up. I I couldn't live the life that Jesus wants me to live. Of course, the answer to that is no, you can't. That's why Jesus died for you. You can't live the way Jesus wants you to live. And yet, that is only half the answer because as we've seen, our lives should be changed, different. Our lives must be other person focused. We must put selfishness to one side. We must follow Christ who was willing to lay down his life for the salvation of others. So, yeah, you should change. And here is how we can do it. God works in us firstly to want to change, he puts a new will in us, and then to act out his good purposes. No, I can't live as I should, but he'll work in me so that I do. The Holy Spirit will give me the ability to live for Christ. It's brilliant. That's what this verse is saying. What does that look like? What will this remarkable supernatural work of God look like in my life? Will he enable me to do great miracles, speak words of knowledge into people's lives? Will he give me astonishing supernatural gifts? Well, he may do. But in verse 14, I see what, in Paul's thinking, will be a supernaturally changed life. Do everything without complaining or arguing. (laughs) Seems very ordinary, doesn't it? Until, of course, you stop and think about it. Do everything without complaining or arguing. That really would be a work of the Holy Spirit, wouldn't it? Everything. Now, my colleague Andrew Reese, um, a few weeks ago in the mornings, has taken us through Numbers chapter 11 under the title Grumblers Anonymous. Look, if you haven't been on Sunday mornings, if Sunday evenings is the only time you come, get hold of the, uh, I was going to say the tape. Sorry, that shows how old I am. Get get hold of the recordings. Download them. Get hold of the CD. They've been very helpful, very challenging. As we've looked at Numbers chapter 11, we've seen the great danger of grumbling. It was a brilliant expose of all the grumbling and complaining that goes on in our lives. So to do everything without complaining and grumbling, that would take a supernatural work of God, wouldn't it? You see, the the wider context, again, remember what's going on here, the wider context is about us putting other people first, seeking their good, their salvation. And when I think of that, that tells me where complaining and arguing and grumbling comes from. At the heart of complaining and arguing is selfishness, isn't it? Rather than selflessness. When I am self-obsessed, when I'm living life for me, when I think I'm so important, I quickly grumble and complain and argue when people don't do things my way because I'm so important. And we don't sing the songs that I want to sing because it's all about me, Jesus. When people get in my way and, uh, and make things difficult for me, when circumstances haven't turned out the way I want them to talk, to, 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 I grumble and argue when I'm self-obsessed, you see. When my selfish ambitions have become everything to me, I'm going to become a complainer when it just doesn't go my way. But complaining and grumbling and arguing soon stop when I'm other person focused. That's what's going on here and God works in us 
in you so that you'll become other person focused and then you don't go around grumbling and complaining all the time so that, verse 15, you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. See, the world we live in is thoroughly self-obsessed, full of self-ambition. It's driven by the desire to get more things for myself. In that dark world, people get hurt and, and pushed out and downtrodden and ignored. Because if you're in my way and I want something, I'm going to push you out of the way. So when we live selfless lives, sacrificial lives, laying down our lives for others, when we're not complaining, complaining and arguing all the time, then verse 15, we'll shine like stars in the universe. Brilliant, isn't it? See how it works? If you get a moment in the next few months, go out into the Peak District late at night on a clear evening. You've probably done this, some of you. Get away from all the lights in the city and look up into the night sky when it is pitch black all around and it is a beautiful clear night. It's an amazing sight, the clear night sky. The the stars shine so brightly Each star, of course, is huge. But each star actually is really very small compared to the scale of the vast, dark universe. Yet each star shines brightly in that dark universe. It is the stars you look at. The stars are the things you notice as they shine brightly. That's what Paul is talking about here. Live a life of self-sacrificial love. Learn to live the greatest love of all, which is to lay down your life for others. And when you do that, you'll not be a grumbler or complainer. But verse 15, you'll shine out like stars in a dark world. As verse 16, you hold out the word of life. It's a great thought. Our witness in a dark world is powerful when we declare the gospel, when we hold out the word of life, when we tell people the gospel and, and when we're living it. Life and lip together. And we shine out like stars in a dark world. For then, you see, we reflect the character of the glorious God we follow. Do you remember that from last week? Our God is a giving God, not a taking God. We saw that last week. He is the God who in Christ was prepared to give up all his rights. Do you remember it? Chapter 2, verse 6, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Didn't grab hold of things. Gave up his rights for others. Here was the God, who was e- Jesus, who was equal with God and yet who didn't exploit his position for his own advantage. It wasn't for him. Gave himself for others. Prepared to take the nature of a servant, of a slave, humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. As we follow him and live that kind of supernatural, self-sacrificial life, and then as we hold out the word of truth, speaking of this Jesus, that is such a powerful witness to the world. Here is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I've been saying it for years now. I'm a follower of Jesus. It's what it means to do it. Uh, Finally, as I close, see that living this way is a huge encouragement to Christian leaders. I've never seen this before this week. I must have read 
uh, Philippians 2 many times. I've never seen it like this before. Look at verse 16. See, Paul says, you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. Paul says to the Philippians, as you live this way and as you hold out the word of life, it makes, it makes all my efforts, the Apostle Paul speaking, all my efforts for you, the Philippians, worthwhile. Live this way, in verse 16, I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labour for nothing. See, Paul has given his life for these people. He's, he, he is ready, literally, to give his life for others. Now, please uh, realise what an encouragement you are to Christian leaders when you live like this. It's happened to me just this week as I've uh, met with members of this congregation who are working out their salvation in this self-sacrificial way, sometimes under great pressure, as I've heard how, how you, this church family, are living this out, it has spurred me on. It's made me think it's worth the work we're doing here. It's encouraged me to get on and work harder. I'm not labouring in vain. Let me say to you, thank you, friends. Thank you for the encouragement that you are to me. So many of you here living selflessly for Christ, not complaining or grumbling or arguing, but shining like stars in a dark universe. I don't mind serving people like that. Those involved in in children and and youth work will, will know exactly what this is all about. Small group leaders will know it too. It's hard work leading others towards Christ, but all the hard work is worth it when you see someone you've invested in living a faithful Christian life. That's what Paul is saying here. To live this out, as others live this out, on the day of Christ at the end of time, I won't regret for one minute labouring and running hard to help you in the Gospel. That's what Paul says in verse 16. And then he says something even more striking in verse 17. He says, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming for your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. The drink offering in the Old Testament was an offering that was was poured over a sacrifice on the temple altar. Imagine a a bull or a a sheep or, or a ram sacrificed on the temple altar. Then they'd have got this drink offering, this libation, and poured it over the top. And so the picture in verse 17 is this. Paul sees the Philippians, the Philippian church, as the the primary sacrifice. They have given themselves for Christ. And Paul is the libation, the liquid sacrifice that's poured over the top. And Paul says here to the Philippians in verse 17, if you give your life like this in self-sacrificial service for others... I don't mind for one minute being the liquid sacrifice poured over the top. I don't mind dying in my service for you if you are living this way. But what I don't want, says Paul in verse 17, is to die a martyr's death without there being any fruit in your life. I don't want to die for nothing. That isn't the way he thinks, actually. No, he says, you're living it and I don't mind dying and I rejoice with all of you. To follow Jesus is not an easy option. To follow him in this way is hard. That isn't a strong enough word. To live a life of self-sacrificial service for the salvation of others, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is so tough. 
But do you see how living a selfless life glorifies God? Do you see how living a selfless life speaks the gospel to others as you hold out the word of life? And do you see how living a self-sacrificial life encourages Christian leaders to do the same? If you're doing it, those of you, those who've been encouraging you will do it too. Therefore, my dear friends, verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for the amazing example of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that the Apostle Paul followed his example. We thank you for the way the Philippian church followed that example. We thank you that next week we're going to see Timothy and Epaphroditus following that example. And we pray this week that we may follow that example. We thank you that as Jesus laid down his life, he did it for others and we pray that you'd help us to be those who live for others first, for their salvation, for their good. May it be a mark of us, Christ Church forward, that we live this, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing we're in the presence of the living God, and knowing you enabling us to will and to act your good purposes for your praise and glory. Amen.